for people who are using ChatGPT, this whole idea of prompt engineering is developing as a skill. I don't think it's bad. It's just different. If it replaces the stuff we used to be creative, A, I don't think it will, but B, I don't think that's good. If it's an additional thing that people are able to develop and use, that's kind of interesting. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Matthew Werwood. And my name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. This is the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. On this podcast, we'll be talking about various creativity topics and how they relate to the field of education. We'll be talking with scholars, educators, and resident experts about their work, challenges they face, and exploring new perspectives of creativity. All with the goal to help fuel a more rich and informed discussion that provides teachers, administrators, and emerging scholars with the information they need to infuse creativity into teaching and learning. So let's begin. Welcome back to another episode of the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. And today's episode is what we refer to as a double espresso with Dr. James Kaufman, who is arguably one of the leading creativity researchers at this time. Now, if you're new to the podcast, or if this is the first time you've heard us talk about a double espresso, we want to offer a little bit of a background. Now, when we started this podcast, we imagined short episodes that you could listen to as you enjoyed your morning coffee. We envisioned our conversations as a discussion you could have with friends and colleagues during a coffee break. However, sometimes we see an opportunity to dig deeper into our guest's work or a topic, and therefore we choose to make a double espresso episode, which is when we produce two episodes from the same interview. Now, James Kaufman is a professor of educational psychology at the University of Connecticut. He is the author, editor of more than 50 books, including Creativity 101 and the Cambridge Handbook of Creativity. He was also a past guest on the show, and that episode has the most downloads of all of our episodes. So if you haven't heard that one, go listen to that one first. And we brought him back to talk about his latest book, The Creativity Advantage, which we've linked in today's show notes. So, James, welcome back to the Fueling Creativity and Education podcast. It's great to be here. So, there are so many points as I was reading through your new book, Creativity Advantage, where I laughed out loud while reading your book. And I just love your approach to writing and how you integrate your own sense of humor. And I have to admit, I burst out laughing when I read the following quote. Whenever I discover any interesting corner of psychology, my immediate impulse is to see if I can connect it to creativity. It's like those old Reese's peanut butter commercials. I'm a guy with a big chocolate bar trying to combine it with anything I see is a good fit. So given this statement, you've got your big bar of chocolate. We would love to start out your conversation with how you see creativity fitting with new areas that are emerging. I mean, I guess like every creativity researcher, but has been absolutely fascinating to me is the link with artificial intelligence. And for somebody who can barely figure out how to use his new laptop, it's a little funny that I'm thinking about this, but I, I've been working with kind of a, a large group of creativity folks on planning a couple of different things, including that. And in general, just the idea of what will AI do to creativity? Will it, in essence, make the rich get richer by having creative people be able to reach even better heights? Or is it going to be something where it 
equalizes things, but not necessarily in a good way, but rather by having people who might have the traits or abilities to be creative no longer have that kind of creative advantage because anybody can use AI to do stuff. And I'm kind of hoping not the latter. In part, I mean, it's, it's actually kind of interesting. Is I, I've talked about this quite a bit with folks, and some people are trying to put a bit of this equality spin where what AI can do is we'll make everybody equally creative. The reason why I'm not sure that's a good thing, A, I think what will end up happening is that people who have the resources, both access and financial to the latest equipment, they will end up getting boosted up. And as it is, creativity is an ability, an attribute, a trait that is already something that enhances equality and equity. And bringing in a new dimension, if it does, quote, level the playing field, it really won't level the playing field. It'll do it for people who have access to technology and resources. So I'm kind of hoping it's not that direction. The idea of it being this co-creation and of helping boost people's potential, that I find wonderful. James, I wanted to come in here. Some people have likened the coming of generative AI and platforms like ChatGPT to what we as a society experienced during the rise of the World Wide Web in the 1990s and to a certain extent, the early 2000s. And just kind of building on this connection a little bit, when the World Wide Web came out, we as a society suddenly had a significant increase in the amount of information that we could easily access. But at the same time, there were some challenges associated with that because you know, obviously it caused disruption. It caused disruption for schools. You started to see platforms like Wikipedia emerge, for example, and okay, well, what do we do with this? But I I think also, you know, what I wanted to focus on is still to this day, we talk about things like media literacy, information literacy, this, you know, this capacity to utilize the World Wide Web as a means to support us in in research and and learning. And so we know that there were some some groups, and there still are some groups, are in a better position to utilize search engines. Perhaps they have knowledge of search engine operators, for example. They're better at, at, at kind of like evaluating the information that comes up on the first page. They're in a better position to then synthesize that information and apply it to their work or perhaps their creative endeavors. And so I think there's a there's a connection to be had reflecting back on what we experienced during the rise of the World Wide Web and some of the things that you're talking about, particularly when it comes to the possibility that some groups might be in a better position to utilize generative AI platforms when compared to other groups. I think it also speaks to the importance, at least with the World Wide Web example, of curation, where I'm I'm seeing it in so many things, where in the 50s or 60s, there would be a certain number of movies made a year, usually by the major studios. There'd be a certain number of records released and so on. Now, I have no idea how many movies are released a year, but there are, I feel like there's probably more movies released in an average week than were released in an average year in the 50s or 60s. But the flip side is with so much content, while at the same time you have newspapers closing left and right, and so there just aren't that many reviews of anything but the major releases. You have all of this everything, whether it's information or media 
all this stuff available. And yet, with the exception of the most well-known stuff, there's no real way to necessarily figure out, well, what should I watch next? The same way, okay, I'm going to look up a topic, well, which link should I click on? It's the same way that, like, if for people who are using ChatGPT, this whole idea of prompt engineering is developing as a skill. I don't think it's bad. It's just different. If it replaces the stuff we use to be creative, A, I don't think it will, but B, I don't think that's good. If it's an additional thing that people are able to develop and use, that's kind of interesting. I mean, there used to be a time, like before the web, where like there's a reason why at one point we're taught to memorize mathematical formulas. Now you just don't need it. The same way, if back in 1987 I wanted to think who's the 23rd president of the United States, either I had a book with me or I had to remember it. And now, oh, just type it in. People who know much more about the brain that, than I do have talked about how this changes, how we store information, how we process. And I think so much will depend how people use AI. So I'm working on a number of projects with a collaborator, Dana Rowe, who's a well-known theatrical composer. Our first book is coming out in December, Creativity Lessons from Musical Theater Characters. And one of the things we've been doing kind of as we're getting a website off the ground is we're using generative AI to produce images that blend to musicals. So for example, the image of Elphaba from Wicked running through the fields like Sound of Music. And what's fascinating is we're becoming little mini X, being very, very mini, but we're developing some expertise on this and figuring out, well, what does AI know? What doesn't it know? And it certainly feels inconsistent. It does feel creative, what we're doing. It doesn't feel artistically creative, necessarily. Like, we're not taking the photographs or, or drawing them. But we're thinking of the ideas conceptually. So it's almost like we're using different creativity processes to get a final creative product in a different domain which is a little weird. And the part of me that is the user is really excited and wants to see what happens next and loves the idea of, you know, maybe it's me chat GPT 8.0 and I, you know, maybe I wouldn't even have to write my own book. And yet, but you know what? I like writing my book and I like having my own style. And I mean, it's also an interesting ethical question. I mean, there's been a number of issues about is self-plagiarism plagiarism? I mean, personally, I don't think so, but People feel very strongly about this. I mean, if there comes a time when AI could write a basic method section just as good or better as any of us could, do any of us like writing method sections? I don't know. I think there's going to be a lot of slippery slopes. Do you want to bring more creative and critical thinking into your school? Look no further than our podcast sponsor, Curiosity to Create. Curiosity to Create is a nonprofit organization dedicated to engaging professional development for school districts and empowering educators through online courses and personal coaching. 
And if you're craving a community of creative educators who love new ideas, don't miss out on their creative thinking network. Get access to monthly webinars, creative lesson plans, and a supportive community all focused on fostering creativity in the classroom. To learn more, check out curiositytocreate.org or check out the links in the show notes for this episode. Now, James, I've been thinking a lot about this and I think I got a little bit, I got a little depressed like a month ago because I was like, are we even going to need creativity anymore? If you can type, if you know what you want to create, even with idea generation or, you know, coming up with unusual ways to approach curriculum. And it was interesting the other day, my daughter said to me, you know, I'd really like to be a musical theater actress when I'm, when I'm older, but I, I just think AI will take that over. I'm like, oh my gosh, why, how on earth could AI take over? She's like, well, you know, they'll create images on stage and we won't have to be there as actors. I was like, that was so outside of my paradigm. But the fact that my 13-year-old daughter was thinking about that really shook me. But that's part of the strike as well, to be fair. That's part of the writers the writers and actors strike. They, they want it written in the contract that AI would not replace them, right? That's a good point. That's a really good point, man. I hadn't thought about that. I was thinking about the actors, but you're right. The writing has to happen first. But I think about... And I know, James, you have you have children who are teenagers, correct? And almost 17. Yes. So, you know, we're preparing them and, and I have teenagers and Matt has three boys. And, you know, here we are preparing them for jobs and people are asking my kids, like, so what are you going to be when you graduate? And I'm like, we don't even know what's going to exist in 10 years. How on earth are you going to ask them what they're going to do? You know, and so when I'm looking at the work that they're doing inside the classroom and artificial intelligence, all I can think is like, is this going to be necessary? So I'm really curious your perspective on that. Are these skills necessary when we see what's coming? It's a good question. It's an existential question. Right now, if I think about the various jobs that seem to be no longer thriving fields because of AI, there's some creativity involved, but more conscientiousness, so to speak. So like copywriting or things like that, where it follows a certain parameter, certain set of rules. To me, the scariest thing is we don't know the rate of acceleration. So I was talking to some colleagues about the, the idea that, okay, AI is pretty good at generating a bunch of ideas, but you still need, well, what should be done in the first place? The problem finding all that stuff. I mean, AI can still do this, just perhaps not very well. But the thing is, it's always improving. I mean, just playing around with chat GPT is as advanced when it first came out to now. It's getting a little bit better. Like if we think about creativity in terms of, let's say, the propulsion model, where there's this idea there's different ways that a contribution can move a field. I mean, certainly replication, AI can do that now. It can do, in essence, what's been done. It can definitely do redirection. I mean, one of the things, I mean, I just enjoy playing around with it. So I'll do stuff like, you know, what would happen if David Bowie's Life on Mars was written about the Declaration of Independence, you know, and just see stuff like that. And it can do that kind of redirection this well from this perspective. It can undoubtedly do a basic step forward. I don't think it can do reinitiation. Doesn't mean it won't be able to. Reinitiation is just a totally new thing. But I think the thing that worries me is 
if the only thing down the road that AI won't be able to do is this kind of big C genius level contribution, I mean, bluntly, that's just going to suck because there are so few of any of us who will ever be able to hit that level. And if we're somehow in a world where it's pretty much either you do paradigm shifting level of work or you are worthless. I mean, that's a very depressing vision of the future. I am hoping that's not going to be the case. I mean, part of me wonders about the ethics of tossing out AI onto the web. I mean, I think there's been a lot of cases and psychologists are not immune. I mean, certainly there's a number of things that we've put out in the web and just tossed out there or to the general public before we kind of fully know if they work or not. I mean, certainly it was just kind of dumped out there without any really thinking about what it might do. And I mean, when we think about creativity and valence, something new is obviously not always something good. I mean, in, in some ways, I think AI, like creativity itself, it's neutral. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it going to, I mean, it depends what we use it for. And certainly if we end up with the, the billionaires using it to replace the workforce, that doesn't sound very good. I mean, the thing, at least right now, is, yeah, AI could make a rip-off Wes Anderson movie, but it can't become the next Wes Anderson and do whatever that random, just different from other stuff style is. James, you know, I think we, we do sometimes fall into a trap of trying to simplify complicated issues. I think generative AI is another kind of complicated issue. There are different platforms and there are different ways to which we can view these platforms, different perspectives that we can take on generative AI. You know, for example, we, we could look at generative AI from the perspective of whether or not it's ripping off artists. And, you know, if you look at how platforms like Dali to generate images in response to the prompts, there's an argument to be had regarding that. But then there's, you know, looking at purely from the perspective of teaching and learning. And again, we might drift off and talk a little bit about what plagiarism is. And I think that's an important conversation to be had. I think there's also important conversation to be had about how the tool might become another threat when it comes to cheating. But I think at the same time, there's obviously significant benefits to generative AI. And I think those benefits will continue to emerge. And I, I was playing around with it with a, a group of teachers recently, and we kind of just used it I would say kind of like a divergent thinking strategy where we kind of just had, you know, the teachers put in a prompt related to, you know, what are the top 10 challenges that teachers typically experience during the first week of the semester. Some of the teachers may have kind of made it, you know, domain specific, such as what are the top 10 challenges a science teacher may experience during the beginning of the semester? What are the, the top 10 challenges a new teacher may experience at the beginning of the semester? And and the results that, that they got back to me really were kind of themes. And they didn't really kind of like address the question per se. So it still required the teacher to kind of take these themes and think about how these themes applied to their teaching and learning environment. How did those problems manifest to get a little bit deeper because they were very generalized. And so it makes me think a little bit about how we might utilize these, these tools, you know, maybe perhaps from a mini C, little C perspective, they get us going on something, but then it's up to us to engage our creativity in order to address some of the problems that we're experiencing. I think that is certainly true right now. The thing that I'm curious about, when AI improves enough to the point where 
teachers can enter this stuff and instead of it giving broad hints or things that would need them to work, what happens if we reach a point where AI will just churn out exactly what they're looking for? Like right now, AI, even if you use it for 90% of what you're doing, you still have to, okay, what's the best thing to choose? Or I'm going to ask, if you want it to be good, you have to evaluate some different things. As it improves, how much mini C and little c would people do if there was no product? So I talk a lot about how we get these benefits and you get it from mini C and little c and pro c and all this stuff. But if we think about, well, why are we doing mini C or little c in the first place? Certainly some mini C things just pop into our heads. But I mean, I'll be honest, if AI was at a point where I could have pressed a button and just entered right the book, The Creativity Advantage, and it would have printed out the exact same thing that I turned in, on one hand, I really enjoyed writing the book. On the other hand, I'm lazy. And knowing it was there, I mean, it's kind of like I enjoy sometimes playing video games and like different point and click adventures where you're trying to solve puzzles. And sometimes if I get stuck, I will eventually look up the walkthrough. But once I know the walkthrough is there, it makes it a little harder for me to enjoy the rest of the game because I know the answers are in the back of the book, metaphorically. And then it becomes, it's always in the back of your mind, well, if I didn't want to do this, I could just press a button or look it up and I wouldn't have to, even if you're enjoying it. And listen, that the, I think we're describing, I think, the history of humanity. We're constantly looking to improve efficiency right, to speed up our output, to minimize cost. And I think that generative AI, I, I think we all need to acknowledge that it's going to be used, unfortunately, to make things more efficient. And that is going to have an impact on the type of things that we're doing and the type of jobs available. But I'll tell you something that's really helped me in terms of overcoming creative blocks is, you know, I use something called Jasper for my generative AI. And so when I'm writing and I get stuck, where I used to sort of go, I don't know what to say next. I feel like I've said everything I need to say. And I'd walk away and I'd get angry. And now I go, okay, what is, you know, I'll plug it in. And next thing you know, I press the button and it comes up with something. And I go, ooh, I like that. That's where I should go next. Or it says something that I go, no, I don't like that. So therefore, I'm going to say this. What I really need to say is this. So it's sort of like having your own like personal assistant all the time who's teaching you how to work through the creative process. So in some ways, it makes it less challenging when you get blocked because it just sort of is a little guide to sort of say, hey, how about this? What about that? You want to say this? You don't like it this? You know, why don't you say it this way? And for me, it's been so helpful in my writing because I don't get stuck anymore. Is that for a positive note, Matt? Well, no, but, but again, we're coming back to efficiency. And my gut feeling is, you know, it comes back to professional environment and, you know, the purpose, and I think we get this connects very much back into James's work with creativity advantage, but meaning, purpose, you know, James reference, he likes writing. If, if he's engaging in that activity of writing because it fulfills him, then I doubt very much that when he's got the opportunity for the prompt to produce the creative advantage book, James will take it. However, if it's more of a, a thing that has to get done as part of his job, 
then of course, if he takes that and the book's produced, then it, it's, it provides James with more time that he can do with other things. And I was, I was having a conversation with a teacher about this the other day. If you can, if you can identify a tool to reduce the amount of feedback that you provide to your students during the week, so feedback might take, you know, six, seven hours of your work, you're able to reduce that and it's still effective within two to three hours. Just think about what else you're doing within those two to three hours. And Cindy, just this week, you know, you and I created a commercial and we didn't have to spend too much time putting the commercial together because we just used chat GPT. We made a slight modification at the end, but I, I didn't have the time to write the commercial and I wasn't really, I wasn't going to find it meaningful or exciting to, to write the commercial. I think it's great. We've got our new sponsor, Curiosity to Create, right? I'll, I'll, I'll do a, a plug, but the act of writing the commercial per se seemed like a perfect job for chat GPT because we had other things to be doing. But in reflecting on all of this, I'm realizing that one of the biggest gradual changes I've made over the last five years is I'm trying to write less stuff that I don't like to write, in part just by collaborating even more with the people who like writing method sections or whatever. And I just don't think it's become as ingrained to turn to it. In part, I'm not sure I'm willing to invest the time to learn how to do it. I mean, I still haven't learned how to use EndNote or anything like that. But my worry is, I don't know if I mean, I might use it for creativity advantage. I wouldn't want to. It's why I don't want to open the Pandora's box at that level. Because either it would be much worse, in which case it wouldn't really save time, or it would be just as good, which would be much, much worse of an outcome. Much worse of an outcome. I mean, I don't think we're there yet, but at some point we're going to be. And given the amount that you've written, James, you can at this point say, write in this voice of James Kaufman. And it will write like you. I don't, I don't know if it would come up the Reese's you know, peanut butter cup story, but it will bring in some humor and academic references. So we are almost there that you could have it write a book for you. If you but it's still your ideas. That's the thing. It's like if you're putting in your ideas and these are the the five areas that I'm going to talk about in the creativity advantage. And you say, I want to talk about healing and self-insight and connection and drive and legacy. If you want to talk about those five things and you plug in a piece of that and you say, this is what I want to say in James Kaufman's voice and it turns it out for you, it's still your ideas. I have played around with it a little narcissistically and asked it to write an essay about James Kaufman's view on blah, blah, blah. And honestly, it's been very generic. Like, well, he argues the importance of creativity and things like that. Where, yes. And honestly, I think if you were to do it swapping out different names, I think you would get very, very similar responses. I mean, heck, one version had me creating the KBC, which was my parents. So. <laughs> <laughs> you speak about ChatGPT version eight, right? And you would assume that that version eight is is going to begin to address that. I mean, I think that's a fair assumption that we, as a society right now, need to think about. And I think we might have a little bit time. I don't know when version eight is going to come out. I'm going to make the guess it's not going to come out over the next six months, but I could be proved wrong. But this is why I think these conversations are important. And this is why I do think there's value in teachers going and exploring it to think about how might this tool, let's see it as a tool, how might this tool support my instructional practice? How might this tool assist how I engage students in the learning experience? 
I do think we need to continue to ask questions. And I do think we need to have a purpose on when and how we use it. At least that's my current feeling of ChatGPT. But I also recognize that there's places where you might just want to throw it out there and see what people do with it. But I think if you're integrating into lesson plans and learning objectives, you need to be sure that you know what is the student's work, for example, and how they're using this as a tool to assist them in producing that outcome. Well, this concludes our first Double Espresso with Dr. James Kaufman. In our second episode, we'll dig further into his model on the creativity advantage. Stay tuned. This podcast was produced by Matthew Warwood and Cindy Burnett. The episode was sponsored by Curiosity to Create.